All right, we're going to be in Judges tonight. Judges chapter 13. We finished up 12 last week and kind of just barely creeped into 13. We read the first verse of 13 to get us ready for Samson, who is the next judge we're going to look at. Uh, the last three judges that we kind of just skimmed over at the end of chapter 12, there wasn't really much information about them. So we didn't really speculate a whole lot on what was there because, well, there's just nothing much to know about them based on what the text says. So we are moving on to Samson, who is just the opposite of the last three because there is much to be said about Samson, probably more said about Samson uh, than any of the other judges that we've looked at up to this point. There was a lot about Gideon. Uh, and and uh, Gideon and Samson probably are the two that are covered in the most detail in Judges. And uh, those are probably the two that most of us that come to mind when we think about Judges is Samson and Gideon. And so we are about to talk about Samson for the next few weeks. We'll be in, on Samson for a while because there's a lot to, to, to discuss about Samson. There's so much detail about his life. We will read all of Judges 13 tonight. I won't go through it verse by verse for time's sake, but we do, we do need to read the whole chapter and to, to not drag us out through Samson for too long over the next few weeks. We're going to try to get this first chapter all in one fell swoop and just kind of get introduced to the story and, uh, and the main character, that is Samson, and, uh, and then that'll help us as we move forward. So we'll pray, and then we will read through chapter 13. Father God, we come to you tonight, and I thank you for these words, and I pray that you just help me to say the things that need to be said. I pray that you help us to learn something from these words, to grow in them, as we talk about Samson tonight and in the weeks to come. And I pray, dear Lord, that the Holy Spirit will just help us to see things in your word. So help us to make sense of some of this stuff we're talking about tonight, and I pray most of all that you're glorified in all that's said in this room. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Judges 13, verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, It is true that you are unable to conceive and have no children. But you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer, or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will receive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair, because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. Then the woman went and told her husband, A man of God came to me. He looked like the awe-inspiring angel of God. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. He said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Therefore, do not drink wine or beer, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth until the day of his death. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, <clears throat> Please, Lord, let the man of God you sent come again to us, and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman. She was sitting in the field, and her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman ran quickly to her husband and told him, The man who came to me today has just come back. So Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he asked, 
Are you the man who spoke to my wife? I am, he said. Then Manoah asked, When your words come true, what will the boy's responsibilities and and mission be? The angel of the Lord answered Manoah, Your wife needs to do everything I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink wine or beer, and she must not eat anything unclean. Your wife must do everything I have commanded her. Please stay here, Manoah told him, and we will prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to him, If I stay, I won't eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to him, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your words come true? Why do you ask my name, the angel of the Lord asked him, since it is wonderful. Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on a rock to the Lord. And he did a wonderful thing while Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up from the altar to the sky, the angel of the Lord went up in its flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell face down on the ground. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We're going to die, said to his wife, because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had intended to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from us. And he would not have shown us all these things or spoken to us now like this. So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to direct him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. Now, this is a pretty <clears throat> pretty good story and not, not really too hard for us to kind of understand what's going on. These are kind of themes or ideas that we've seen in other, other stories of the Scripture, so we won't dig into it verse by verse for time's sake. But what we are introduced to here at the very beginning in the first verse is the newest enemy of Israel. Now, we've seen lots of enemies of Israel as we've gone through the book of Judges, and the story is the same as it is here. The Israelites did, again, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. We know that phrase. We've heard that phrase a lot in the book of Judges so far. And so they did good for a while. They had had some good judges that had kind of led them in the right path, delivered them from their enemies, and now they're doing what's evil again. This time, there's a new enemy on the scene. The enemy this time is the Philistines. And if you notice, they were handed over to the Philistines for 40 years. Now, we need to remember that when we read these things and we see that the Israelites were uh, being oppressed by these enemies, it was not a short period of time. It's often a very long period of time, years and years and years. And here we have that they are being oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. So essentially, a whole generation would have grown up (coughs) being oppressed by the Philistines because the Israelites continue to do what was evil in the Lord's sight. Now, this isn't the first time that we see the Philistines in Scripture. Uh, You may remember them if you go back and read in Genesis. uh, We see a reference to them way back, I believe, in Genesis 26, uh, where Isaac is in the land, and God tells him to stay there and kind of reiterates the promise that he made through Abraham. He reiterates it to Isaac, saying, look, it's your family and your offspring is going to be here in this land. And so while Isaac's in the land... He has to dig out the wells that Abraham dug because it tells us that the Philistines 
had filled in those wells. So there was already tension there between the Philistines and between God's people, the Israelites, all the way back to the time of Abraham and Isaac when those wells were filled in. And so the Philistines are an enemy that we see mentioned sometimes through Scripture that the Israelites have to come up against. And they are coming up against this uh, enemy here. Now you may remember as we've gone through uh, these different enemies that are coming against Israel and these different judges and the different tribes, we've kind of bounced all around our map. And typically the enemy that's coming in is kind of coming into the area uh, of whatever tribe there is. You may remember that uh, the people from Aram came in, uh, or, or in this area I should say, came in and attacked the people here. Uh, the area that we're talking about tonight, though, is the area of the Philistines, which would be right here along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And the tribe of Dan, their allotment was right here, kind of in this little, little area right here. It was a little section, and it was right along the coast, just north of where the Philistines were, and it kind of stretched over into the central part of the land of Israel. And so this is where uh, that, <coughs> excuse me, um, this is where Samson was from. This is where he was from, the tribe of Dan. And so we can see why these two, these two may be fighting each other because the Philistines are right next door to the Danites. And that's the tribe that Samson was from. And so Israel is in trouble again. For 40 years they've been oppressed by the Philistines. But God is preparing a new judge. And the new judge to come onto the scene is going to be Samson. Now... If we read on a little further, we see the problem. We see that there is this man, Manoah, and his wife. And the problem is she cannot conceive. She cannot give birth to a child. But an angel of the Lord appears to her and says, You are going to conceive. You are going to give birth to a child. And he gives her very specific instructions. Don't drink any wine or beer. Uh, don't eat anything unclean. He gives these specific instructions. And even as we read through the story, you may have noticed that when, uh, even when Manoah questioned him, he just kind of repeated those things, the angel of the Lord. Like, I'm not, I'm not answering your questions. I'm telling you this. Your wife doesn't need to drink any beer or wine. She doesn't need to eat anything unclean. And so it was pretty clear. It was a need-to-know basis. Here's what you need to know. I'm not answering any more questions. So we don't really have a whole lot from the angel of the Lord here other than that, that, that key uh, statement, that key command that was given to Manoah's wife. Now, first the command was given to her, and he wasn't around. Eventually he came into the picture, and he, he asked the guy, this angel of the Lord, what was going on. Now, it would appear as though that the angel of the Lord that, that, that came to Manoah and his wife probably had taken some kind of human form. Uh, it probably looked like a normal person because uh, they don't even notice that it's an angel of the Lord. She does acknowledge that it's a man of God, but it tells us in the text they don't realize that it's an angel of the Lord. So it seems unlikely that there was any kind of big supernatural, big bright light situation that was going on. It seems as though this, this angel of the Lord, this man of God that came to Manoah and his wife must have looked like everybody else. It was somebody that they knew was of God, uh, but didn't really look different than another normal human being. Now, we won't really get into the angel of God here uh, since we've talked about that earlier on, way back in the book of, uh, of, of Judges. When we first started, we talked about the angel of the Lord and how the angel of the Lord appears several times throughout the Bible. And we talked about some ways that we may could interpret the angel of the Lord. Now, oftentimes we see the phrase angel of the Lord used, 
But in the midst of the angel of the Lord speaking and the way that the people who are talking to the angel of the Lord respond to him, they stop responding to this person as an angel but start referring to him as the Lord. Uh, We see the same thing with Manoah here at the end. After he sees this angel of the Lord, he tells his wife, I'm going to die because we've seen God. We're going to die. We've seen him face to face. And so they at least acknowledged and recognized this person that they saw that is referred to as an angel of the Lord, as the Lord. We see a similar thing with Jacob when he wrestles with God. I believe that's uh, um, Genesis 32, I think, is where that story is found. He wrestles with God all night. You may have heard the story. And at the end of it, uh, he's, he's supposedly wrestling with an angel of God, but he names the place uh, Peniel. And the, the word Peniel there means, I have seen God face to face. And so even though the text talks about the angel of the Lord there, uh, Jacob seems to recognize him as God. Now, we have lots of other examples of that through Scripture that we won't go through tonight. So it's possible and maybe even likely here that when it refers to the angel of God, it may very well have been God who appeared to them uh, in in a human form. Uh, Some say it may have even been Jesus in a human form that appeared to to Manoah and his wife here. Uh, Or it's possible that it could be exactly what it says and be an angel of the Lord, but based on the language that's used, uh, it's, it's, it, seems, it seems at least possible that this angel of the Lord could have very well been the Lord himself who was revealing this message to Manoah and his wife. And so Manoah's wife was going to give birth to a son, even though she could not, uh, before this point, she was not able to conceive. And the angel says that the son is to be a Nazarite. <clears throat> now, If you want to study about the Nazarite vow and what it means to be a Nazarite in better detail, you can go back and read in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, and it talks about uh, what it means to be a Nazarite. Now, it says in Numbers chapter 6, verse 2, that both men and women can take the Nazarite vow, although we don't really see uh, any references that I'm aware of. Maybe there are some there. I I mean, I hadn't obviously scoured through the whole Bible looking for references, but I don't know of any, or I've been able to find any easily, I should say, of women who were Nazarites. And what that vow would have looked like for them, I guess it would have been similar to what it would have been for a man. But if I want to summarize it for you tonight, now I want you to go back and read it in Numbers chapter 6 when you get time, but I can summarize for you what the Nazarite vow was. A Nazarite vow, the word Nazarite, comes from the word Nazir. Now, I've got Nazarite up here twice, and I've got it spelled two different ways. The top one is the one we're talking about here, Nazarite with an I, Nazirite as opposed to the bottom spelling, Nazorite. Now, it's possible that some who come from the region of of Nazareth may be called Nazorites, the bottom spelling. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about people from Nazareth. Jesus was from Nazareth, but when we see Jesus referred to from Nazareth in the Scripture, uh, we see that Jesus is the Nazarene. That's a a phrase we see in Scripture. Uh, There's even denomination, Church of the Nazarene, which I'm sure derives from the fact that Jesus is the Nazarene. Now, when Jesus is called a Nazarene, it says in the Scripture that it's to fulfill the prophecy uh, that he would come from Nazareth. So we know that when Jesus is referred to as a Nazarene, it's referring to where he is from, that is, Nazareth. And that's what some may would say that bottom word is, a Nazarite with an A. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about people from the region or the town of Nazareth. Uh, We're talking about people who took the Nazarite vow. 
And that's what's covered in Numbers chapter 6. And for those who took the Nazarite vow, the word Nazar in the Hebrew means to be consecrated or to be set apart. That's simply what that means. That's uh, uh, similar to the word holy. That's kind of what it means too, to be separated, to be set apart. So those who were taking the Nazarite vow were saying, God, I'm setting myself apart for you. I'm being consecrated for you. Now, this was not something that necessarily had to be a lifetime vow and and probably rarely was. Now, in the case of Samson, it was, and it tells us here, the angel of the Lord says, look, he's going to be a Nazarite from birth to death. He's going to be a Nazarite all the way through. But this is a vow that certain people could take. They could take this Nazarite vow. And uh, we, we don't have anybody, oddly enough, in all of the rest of Scripture that's specifically named as taking the Nazarite vow other than Samson. He's the only one that specifically says he is a Nazarite. Now, there are others that may have been Nazarites, uh, one being Samuel. If you go on and you read into 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, uh, Samuel's uh, mother, Hannah, could not have a child, and she was praying earnestly that God would give her a child. And she said, God, I'm summarizing here, but you can go back and read it, 1 Samuel 1, 11. God, if you give me a child, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him to you. I'm going to dedicate him to you. He's going to be yours, and I'll never cut his hair. Now, it could be, and maybe even likely so, that when she says, I'll never cut his hair, she might have been saying, and he will be a Nazarite. Although it doesn't say that that's exactly the case, but that may have been what she was meaning there because in number six, there are three things that have to be done when you take the Nazarite vow. Number one, you're not to drink any any kind of beer or wine, anything that has to do with grapes or the vineyard, you're not supposed to have anything to do with. That's number one. That's part of the Nazarite vow. That may be why the angel of the Lord told Samson's mom here to abstain from that. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe she was taking the Nazarite vow in some way in that period of time of her pregnancy. Maybe that's why those instructions were given to her in preparation of her giving birth to Samson. That's one thing that it says in number six. You cannot drink any wine. The second thing is, probably the most famous thing that Samson is known for, you can't cut your hair. When you're in the midst of a Nazarite vow, you cannot cut the hair of your head. The razor's not supposed to touch your head. And number three, if you take the Nazarite vow, you cannot touch a dead body. Not even anybody in your immediate family. It specifies that in Numbers chapter 6. You cannot touch a dead body. Now, those are the three qualifications that if you said, I'm taking this Nazarite vow, I'm setting myself apart for you, dear Lord, I'm abstaining from wine, I'm not going to cut my hair, and I'm not going to touch any dead bodies. And while you were in that vow, for as long as you would have been in that vow, then you would not have been able to do those things. If you did do any of those things, for instance, touch a dead body, well, you had to shave your hair, you had to start over. You couldn't just keep going from where you were. You kind of had to start your vow over. So if it was for X amount of time and you touched the dead body, well, the clock resets, you cut your hair, and off you go. Now, I mentioned that Samuel could have been a Nazarite, even though it's not spelled out. The fact that his mom said, I'm not going to cut his hair, may have meant that Samuel was a Nazarite. Many believe that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Again, it's not spelled out for us clearly, uh, but the angel that comes and tells Zechariah that John the Baptist is going to be born says, and he's not to drink any wine. 
Same thing that the Nazarite vow said, but none of the rest are mentioned. It just says, don't let him drink any wine. Now, even though these are the three requirements, even when it comes to Samson, the one that's really focused on, that's the key part of the story that we all may be familiar with, is that it's his hair that doesn't need to be cut. That's kind of the key thing that's focused on, even though the not touching the dead body and the drinking the wine are part of the Nazarite vow. It seems, at least in this story, and maybe for all Nazarite vows, that the key was the cutting of the hair. So it's possible that Samson, or excuse me, that Samuel was an, uh, took the Nazarite vow or was born into that. It's also possible that John the Baptist uh, was also a Nazarite during his lifetime. Now, even though we don't have specific people that are listed, this person was a Nazarite other than Samson. Those are two examples of people who may have been. And we know that indeed there were others because God even says that in Amos chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you want to turn there, I don't remember that scripture off the top of my head, but I'm going to turn there and read it for you right quick. Amos chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Now, uh, Amos is a prophet of the Lord, and he's speaking to God's people because they're being disobedient, not so different from what we're talking about in Judges. This would have been hundreds of years later, but Amos is giving a message to the Israelites because of their disobedience. And in that message that he's giving to the people, he says this in Amos 2, verse 11 and 12. I raised up some of your sons as prophets, and some of your son, excuse me, and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. So there's a good scripture to let us know that indeed that some of the Israelites were Nazarites because Amos says that here. This is what God's speaking to the Israelites. I made some of your men Nazarites, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. You made them do what they weren't supposed to do. So even though there aren't any other Nazarites that are mentioned apart from Samson, uh, we know that there were definitely other people who took the Nazarite vow uh, <clears throat> in particular in the Old Testament, and maybe even John the Baptist in the New Testament, and possibly even Paul in the New Testament. Now, in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, it talks about that Paul fulfilled a vow and shaved his head. Now, it doesn't spell out for us that it was a Nazarite vow, uh, <clears throat> but it's a possibility and that that was the case. Uh, it's also mentioned again in Acts chapter 21 that there are some who were to go with Paul on his journeys along the way. He is to take these four men, and he is to take them and pay to have their heads shaved uh, in completing their vow. It's also possible that these four men that are being talked about are also part of the <clears throat> Nazarite vow. Now, having the hair grow out during the vow was part of the vow. The other part of the vow, when the vow was complete, is that you would go to the tabernacle, the tenor meeting, and ultimately the temple when it was built, and, and your hair would be, would be cut off there and it would be offered with some other offerings. That was part of the Nazarite vow. Once you fulfilled your vow, that's what you did. At that point, your hair was cut off. So that would make sense if Paul would have taken a Nazarite vow or these other four men with him would have been completing their vow as to why they were going to get their hair cut off. Now, that also begs the question that may come to your mind, well, this was after Jesus Christ, and so why in the world uh, were they even worried about the Nazarite vow? Well, in Paul's case, he was trying to minister to the Jews. And in the context of the stories I just told you, he's trying to be accepted by the Jews. And so, as the scripture said, sometimes we have to be all things 
to all people so that some may come to know the Lord. And so he probably, no doubt he did, as the text tells us in Acts 18 and 20, or 21, excuse me, that he did these things uh, to get the attention of the Jews so that they would listen to him. That was important to them. They were still living under the law. They were still worried about the temple at that time. So the fact that Paul took the Nazarite vow, if he did, and that's why he got his hair cut, uh, does not mean, I don't believe in any way, that Paul was saying we need to live under the law and still do those type of things that were done then. I think he was doing those things because the people he was trying to reach did those things. And so that might be a good example uh, even later on in the New Testament of someone who took the Nazarite vow. Now, that's a lot of good stuff we covered tonight, and we're not we're not quite finished. We're 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 getting there. I'm gonna make sure I didn't I didn't forget anything that I wanted to mention. Now, one thing that we uh, that we may see when we when we talk about Nazarite is the question may be raised: Was Jesus a Nazarite? Did Jesus take the Nazarite vow? Well. It doesn't appear to me that Jesus was a Nazarite. Uh, I believe that Jesus probably uh, was not a Nazarite. Now, one of the, the, the proof texts, if we're going to argue that John the Baptist was a Nazarite, is Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, this is what Jesus says of John the Baptist. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, if this is a proof text to say, oh, John uh, John the Baptist didn't drink any wine, therefore, this is a good proof that he was a Nazarite. Well, the next line says that Jesus did. So if Jesus did, then that would, in essence, mean that Jesus was not a Nazarite. Now, Also, it's clear that Jesus touched dead bodies. There's one story where he goes to see this girl who is dead, and he touches her on the hand. Now, in the text, when they say she's dead, he says she's asleep. It could be. You could make the argument, well, she really wasn't dead. She just appeared dead, uh, and he said asleep, and so maybe he didn't really touch a dead body. Well, that's possible, but almost always when we see the phrase asleep in the New Testament, even when Jesus uses that phrase, he's talking about people as they are dead. Lazarus being another good example of that. So when the girl is asleep that Jesus touches her hand, it seems pretty clear that he's saying that she's dead. Now, if he drunk wine, which John the Baptist did not, and if he touched the dead body, well, those are two of the three things that a Nazarite would not do. So it doesn't appear to me that Jesus was a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. He was from the town of Nazareth, but he was not a Nazarite in that he took uh, the Nazarite vow. And so the angel told Manoah and his wife what was going to happen, and they uh, made this sacrifice for this angel of the Lord, and they were uh, made aware that it was an angel of the Lord because it went up with the flame as they lit this sacrifice on fire, and uh, of course he kind of he kind of freaked out there, and his wife had to calm him down. Oh, we're going to die! We're going to die! We just saw the face of the Lord, and his wife says, "Calm down. If the Lord if the Lord intended to kill us, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have told us these things and treated us this way." He kind of guided us through this process. And so everything was okay, and the stage was set for the next judge who was to come, and that is Samson. And at the end, we are told in verse 24, So the woman gave birth to the son and named him Samson. Now, Samson grew up to eventually be a judge, and I don't know when Samson 
became a judge. I don't know at what age Samson was because the next thing we see of Samson, he's looking for a wife. So he was an adult at this point by the, by the time we see him later in the story. And his story may not be, at least in that, in that particular uh, area, it's not so different from Jesus' story in that we see a lot of stuff about Jesus' birth and about the, the angels coming and all the things that occur right in the first couple of years of Jesus' life. But then after that, Scripture's pretty much, pretty much quiet on what Jesus did, apart from the one story as a child of him getting left behind. Uh, other than that, there's a big span of Jesus' life, probably almost 30 years, where that's the only story we know is the one of him getting left behind. Now, Samson's story here is kind of similar. We get this angel that comes and talks about what's going to happen, how he's going to be born, that he's going to be a Nazarite. We see his birth take place at the end of chapter 1, and then at the beginning, or excuse me, uh, the, the, the end of chapter 13, and then at the beginning of chapter 14, we see that he's looking for a wife. And so I don't know how old he would have been at the the time but he would have been old enough to be marrying age so <clears throat> in all of this time that they were uh, under the uh, under the oppression of the philistines i don't know if the time that, that that's covered until he got married if that's covered in that 40 years or if the rest of the years that go by from the end of 13 to 14 are more added on top of the 40 years we looked at at the beginning but at the very least it was at least 40 years which is a long time to be oppressed. Now, what we're going to see as we continue to read about Samson is even though he was set apart and consecrated to be a man of God, at least in his later years, uh, he did some things that really were questionable. He, he was not a very wise guy and didn't, didn't really take his vow seriously enough. Now, maybe leading up to that point, he was a, a, a good godly man. Maybe in the years that we don't see, uh, maybe he was serving the Lord and obedient to the Lord and, and took his vow seriously. Maybe that's why there's nothing written about him in those years. Maybe he was doing good, and we don't see uh, but to the very end because that's when things begin to go downhill. So that may leave some of us with the question of, <clears throat> what about the Nazarite vow today? Is that something that we should take today? Is that something that Christians should do? I mean, after all, there's, there's, there's really, it's a good thing in a sense to say, all right, God, I'm setting myself apart for you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to set myself aside. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to give you my attention. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be holy. I'm going to be consecrated to you. That's essentially uh, what taking a Nazarite vow is. So is that something that we should still be doing today? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I would say no, that's not something that we should do today. Uh, the most obvious reason as to why we cannot take the Nazarite vow today is that there is no temple of the Lord to go to once we've completed the vow. There is no high priest that we go to and that we get our hair cut off. And so that eliminates us from possibly carrying out and holding to the Nazarite vow. With that being said, even though we don't consecrate ourselves or set ourselves in a way uh, to be holy in that way, one example or, 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 or parallel that come to my mind, and this may or may not be a good one, but I think it's in some way relevant, that we see in the New Testament is the idea of fasting. And it's kind of for the same reason. When we say we fast, it's for a time that we're saying, okay, God, I'm going to devote myself to you. It's not something that's going to be a lifetime. It's something that's going to last a period of time. It may last a few days, may last a few weeks, may last a couple of months. Now, when I say fast, I don't mean not completely eating. There are different types of fast and things that we could fast from. So some may would last longer than others. 
And that's kind of what I think about when I think about the Nazarite vow. Something that we do today as Christians, or should do, is say, look, all right, Lord, I'm going to set myself apart for you, and I'm going to set aside some things of the world. I'm even going to set aside my food and time when I would normally eat. Instead of that, I'm going to pray to you. I'm going to live on your word. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to, I'm going to live in prayer life to you uh, as opposed to living on bread alone. And that's kind of what fasting is. We set ourselves apart for the Lord. And those type of things we should do. Should there be times where we say, God, all right, I'm yours, and I want to, I want to focus on you and set myself apart for you? Absolutely. But do we have to grow our hair out and not drink wine and not touch a dead body to fulfill that? Absolutely not, because Jesus Christ has freed us from all of those things. And we are consecrated, and we are made holy through Jesus Christ. We are set apart from Him. Are we to be set apart and be different from the world? Absolutely. Were there other, uh, other faithful followers of God in the Old Testament that were not Nazarites? Absolutely. There were plenty of them. But there were some that were set aside. They were set apart as something special. And they would have been known because of what people... It would have been easy to see that they were different. And the same should be true of you and I as Christians. Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, <clears throat> that we are not to be conformed to this world, uh, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There should be something different about the follower of Jesus Christ than there is the rest of the world. Why? Because we are just what a Nazarite was. We are set apart. We are consecrated. We are made holy to the Lord. Uh, we see that in Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says of us here who are Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession, so that you may proclaim His praises of the one who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now those are good words that describe us and why the words consecrated and set apart are not in that phrase there. That's the kind of language that's being used. We are a holy nation. We are God's people. We are set apart because we are God's people. We're not of this nation. We're not of the nation of the United States of America. We live here, and while we're on this earth, we're Americans. But even more so, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are of His nation. We are of His holy nation. We are a people for His possession. We are set apart for Him. We are consecrated to Him. And that's what the Nazarite vow was, saying, All right, God, I'm going to be yours. I'm going to dedicate myself to you. And that should be what we should do as Christians. And thank the Lord we don't have to grow our hair out, and we don't have to do all these other things. Because Jesus has done everything for us and He's done it perfect. Because Jesus was set aside for us. Because He was perfect. Because He was a perfect sacrifice. Because of Him, we are set aside and we are His. And we are made holy through Jesus Christ being holy. Now while Samson was set apart to be holy and while he was set apart to, to take that Nazarite vow, boy, he surely sinned and he surely did not live up to the holiness that he was set aside for. But that's where Jesus Christ comes in and saved the day. Because where all these other judges failed, Samson included, Jesus Christ did not fail. And Jesus Christ was perfect. And Jesus Christ was set apart for us. And because of Jesus Christ, we are set apart for Him by Him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we come to You tonight and thank You for these good words. 
I pray that you help us to, to get something from them and to understand this stuff as we learn about Samson. Dear Lord, help us not to get too confused with Nazarite and Nazarene. And God, help us just to, to realize that we are set apart for you, dear Lord, by you, by Jesus Christ. And help us to live like it so that we would be different than everybody else in the world, so that we would stand out, dear Lord. Not that we boast and that we're better than the world, but God, we stand out because people see your love in us. And so I pray that you would help us to live for you the best way we can and to know that we are yours, dear Lord. And even though we uh, may not have to grow our hair out or not drink wine or not touch dead bodies and those things, dear Lord, there are plenty of things that we need to abstain from and we need to avoid. Dear Lord, so that we can stay holy and not be led astray as Samson was. So help us to be on guard, dear Lord, in all we do. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.